What a wonderful time of singing praises to our God. He's so worthy. I don't know what your plans are for Friday night, and if you don't know what they are, then you need to sign up to be part of the Sudanese party. You can help and minister. So since you didn't have plans, you now have plans. Right, Paul? All right. Also, if you have not uh, taken part in the Operation Christmas Child, you need to do so. I was at a conference Monday and Tuesday of this week, and one of the speakers at the beginning, uh, his name was Vladimir. He started out and, and began to tell his story, and he explained that the first gift he had ever received was one of these Christmas boxes and what an impact it had on him, so much so that he now works for the organization. Pretty cool. You can have a part in that, so join in. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Keep that verse in mind as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts. As I considered the various ways to start out the message today, uh, one of the ideas was to come on stage uh, dressed as Zeus, the mythological Greek god. Uh, I got a picture of him there. Uh, I figured it was tempting, but I had a, a couple of major obstacles with that. Uh, one was simply that uh, I don't have a beard. The other one is that after the move, I can't find my toga. So otherwise, I would have done it for you today. I hope you see the humor in that. I'm being sarcastic. Anyway, all right. In today's text, Paul and Barnabas... We see them committed to serving God and giving him the glory no matter what the circumstances they face. Even though many believed they had been chased out of Antioch, Pisidia, and so now they go to Iconium. They traveled 80 miles southeast through rolling hills to a beautiful place uh, near fertile plains and forests. Iconium was a very old community. Some believe that it was older than Damascus. It's an agricultural center, a trade center, and also a convergence of many roads in that area. We see here in today's text, we're going to be in Acts 14. We're going to be there in a second. Uh, we see those who are committed witnesses for Christ. Committed witnesses for Christ. Look with me at verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so that they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray again. Father, we commit this time to you. You are worthy, you are mighty, you are glorious, and we love your word. So we would ask you to guide our time now in it. May your spirit move mightily. Lord, would you 
uh, have your way in our hearts and lives. We pray for East Campus today and their service, and we just ask your blessing upon it. And Father, we think of uh, the things that we've got going on, the Sydney's party this weekend, and even just these uh, Operation Christmas Child adventures we're going to be doing. We ask that your spirit would go and move in a mighty way as well. Father, may we be faithful in prayer. Father, take this time and use it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. It likely helped that Paul and Barnabas knew that they had been called to this task, and therefore they're determined to carry it out. Now in Iconium, they speak in the synagogue, and again, a great number of both Jews and Greeks respond to the gospel message. And I would suggest that this must have been fun for them. When God adds his blessings to ministries, we get to see a small part of what he is doing, and that is so fun. What a joyful and exciting thing to be a part in any way of what God is doing and wherever he's doing it. Yet again, the unbelieving Jews are a problem. It's a theme, isn't it? They're in the thick of spiritual warfare, a battle. And the opposition is very aggressive. And maybe we stop and we say, why? Why such aggression against them? Are they doing something that is so wrong? I mean, why do they act like that? And I think we find the answer in the words of Jesus when it's recorded for us in John chapter 15, verse 18. Where it says, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here in chapter 14, we, we see Paul and Barnabas, and they don't seem to be too concerned about those who oppose them. And they respond by remaining for a long time. Again, they are committed witnesses for Christ. And I think it's worthy of noting that this is not their home. This is not where they would be super comfortable. No, this is where they are outsiders and where they are facing opposition. But they're seeing God's power at work. So they stay and they, and they spoke boldly. They didn't go underground with it. They didn't get to where they were having these secret meetings. And notice that God bore witness to the word of his grace. He granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God shows up in the obedience of his people. He empowers those whom he commissions. That's important. In this passage, when and where does fruitful ministry take place? I mean, there's more trouble here again. Some believe, but some don't. You ever been in that kind of position where you're, you're liked by some and hated by others? It's not a fun place. It's not always a comfortable situation. How do you handle it when you are rejected? 
Anybody like that? I mean, there's various forms of of rejection, and they happen in, in all different settings of life to all different people. As a pastor, I've come to dread the phrase, Pastor, we need to talk. You never know what that's, what's going to follow after that. It can invoke various feelings. See, the problem here is that in the apostle's situation, evil does not play nice. The only rule of evil is that there are no rules. The people of Iconium are divided. But those who dislike Paul and Barnabas and their message are far more aggressive and vicious. So the apostles and their followers learn of the planned attempt to hurt them and even put them to death. Think about that. Paul and Barnabas and their followers, they're not trying to hurt anybody. They're not attacking anybody. They're not trying to kill people who don't believe. But evil doesn't play nice. It's like terrorism. So wisely, the apostles move on to other cities. And maybe we ask the question, why do they move on now? And I think we must remember that God gives us common sense for a reason. It's one thing to stay while there's, an opposition, there's opposition. It's another thing to stay when your life is at risk. And I'm sure that at some point there was a prayerful decision and a consensus of the Spirit's leading. Because there can be a difference between courage and just out-and-out foolishness. But I think it's notable that even during persecution and hardship, God sovereignly enables fruit of ministry to grow. Now let's pick it up again here in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now Luke doesn't specify the exact location here. Uh, was Was there a synagogue? It's questionable. Traditionally, there had to be at least 10 Jewish males for there to be a Jewish house of prayer. And no doubt, this man had to be assisted to get to this location where he could hear the gospel being presented. And Luke, the physician, spares no detail in presenting this man's physical condition and situation. And we can only speculate here, but the Holy Spirit must have helped Paul see that this man has faith. I'd suggest to you that that alone is a wonderful thing to consider. I've long believed that when someone genuinely loves Jesus, when they genuinely love the gospel, it becomes evident to those around them, even if they don't speak. I think that true believers in Christ possess a radiance, and other believers can see it. You know what I'm talking about? You experience that? No doubt the Holy Spirit prompts Paul to, to, to tell this man to stand up. And I would venture to guess that, that Paul's heart rate probably started to increase as he knew that he was supposed to say it to this man. But remember, the Lord had been granting signs and wonders as a verification that the words that they're sharing are true. Verse 9. 
Then it happens. Luke records, and he sprang up and began walking. What a scene. And note how the people respond. We now see praised witnesses. Look at verse, verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds crying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas have a problem on their hands that they don't even likely realize at first. No doubt they'd experienced excited crowds before, but this likely had a different feel to it. Now, the culture of the community, community fed into this idolatrous reaction to the healing. The community in which they lived had an ancient legend that, that Zeus and Hermes had previously come disguised as humans. And in need of a place to stay, they asked 1,000 homes, and no one welcomed them in. And ultimately, they were invited into a humble cottage of straw and reeds by an elderly couple, Philemon and Baucis. And they were fed with what that couple had. To show their appreciation, the cottage was then turned into a temple, and the couple into a priest and priestess. And when the couple had died, they were immortalized as an oak and linden tree. The unwelcoming homes were then destroyed. This was their belief. You can just imagine how crazy they must have become. Barnabas must have carried some qualities about him that made them presume him to be Zeus, the king of the gods, right? The Greek gods. And they knew Hermes to be a god of trade, but also a divine trickster and the messenger. So certainly Paul was Hermes. Zeus and Hermes have returned. We must extend them hospitality, right? We must not make the same mistake that was made before. Again, this creates a serious problem for them because they begin to praise Paul and Barnabas. Now, if you remember back earlier on in, in Acts in chapter 3, Luke records for us that healing at the temple entrance, remember? Where Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. Remember that? It is possible that Paul healing this man but not doing it in Jesus' name is what fed their hysteria. The source of their problem was that their idolatry already existed there. 
Now that these people felt that the objects of their worship were right in front of them, they're saying, listen, the gods have visited us. And Paul and Barnabas are mislabeled as gods. And the priest of Zeus goes into high gear to round up a sacrifice, no small sacrifice. He's talking about oxen here. Very valuable and useful animals, especially in that culture. Obviously, at some point, Paul and Barnabas figure it out that the people are praising them and worshiping them. And maybe Barnabas notices first and he says, Paul, they're praising us, not God. And they run out rending their garments as an as a expression of their displeasure. Look what they say in 15 again. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They absolutely did not want to receive the glory for what God's power had done. They wanted God to receive all the glory due to his name. So they aggressively deny any divine status. Instead, they point to God as the creator. They're saying, we're people just like you. But let us tell you about the creator of the universe whose power you've just seen. Stop your foolish idolatry. It is a vain pursuit. It was not new. It had existed for a long time. They're saying, turn your worship toward the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. D.G. Peterson writes, Conversion involves turning away from every alternative object of devotion and turning to the living God who created everything. Idolatry is condemned in Scripture because it diminishes the divine to human size and makes God dependent on human action and subject to human control. Turn from that. And I would ask for a minute, if if you and I, as we read this and look at this, do we find ourselves thinking, are these people stupid? What's wrong with these people? But maybe I've got to stop and say, does idolatry exist in our culture today? Yeah. Scott just mentioned that in our time of confession, didn't he? It'd be wise for you and I to ask the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts as to what it is that can be a source of idolatry in our hearts. You know, we come in on Sunday morning, we sing these praises to God, and we turn our focus to Him. But what do our priorities and what does our spending, what does our schedule, what does the things we value show up more so than God during the week? Back to our text, look at verse 19. Now we see persecuted witnesses. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing 
that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many uh, tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Persecuted witnesses for Christ. Once again, jealous and angry Jews enter the scene. You realize these people traveled 80 miles on foot in order to oppose Paul and Barnabas. How's that for committed? To oppose God. And they were apparently very persuasive. Having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul. I want you to just stop and think of the hatred for a minute. They're so angry that they're willing to brutally murder someone for what they believe. Intense. They're that angry. It's estimated that a person would die between 20 minutes and two hours from the start of a stoning to when they would die. Can you imagine? Being so filled with hatred that you you bind someone, you restrain them so they can't move or or get away from you. And you blindfold them so they can't dodge the, the stones that are coming. And realize these are stones that are intended to kill. These are not gently thrown stones. These are people who are winding up and doing their best major league pitch to hit them. One after another. Some missing or whizzing by and you're thankful for the ones that miss and others hitting hard and direct. Maybe a short break here and there where they they can regather more rocks and stones to throw. As they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. They drag him out of the city like they're taking out the trash. Such hatred. They believed he was dead. And I've got to wonder, did no one see his chest rise and fall with those breaths? Did no one check his pulse? Did he actually die? Did the Lord restore him? Did the Lord just confuse them? Can you imagine that moment where the weeping disciples have have gathered around and they're looking at a man they love and appreciate who's, who's bloody and lifeless? Verse 
but then they hear a little gasp for air. Or they see a swollen and bloody eye try to open. His limbs start to move. They watch as he regains strength, and and he's trying to get up, and they're even encouraging him not to, but he's determined, and he rises back to his feet. Can you imagine the joy? These people standing around him praising God. The death had not gotten to him. So then they get out of there, right? No, they go back into the city. And maybe Paul needed to go in there and rest or or get his cell phone charger before he left for Derby. I don't know. It would seem illogical, wouldn't it? And then in Derby, it sounds like ministry is just great. And it's interesting. It seems that, that there was no opposition at Derby. But maybe that makes sense because his rivals think he's dead. Remember, they dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. They, they're ready to go home. Their, their work is done there. They're not worried about him anymore. So they go and have this wonderful ministry time at Derby. But then Paul and Barnabas makes a decision that certainly is counterintuitive, right? I mean, think of the map again. They're now at Derby, and they're, they're close to where they could just go down to Tarsus, where, where Paul's from, and go see family, have a home-cooked meal or something. And that's not far from Antioch. I mean, he's been through a lot. They've, they've carried the message. Isn't it time just to, to go home and to take the easy way? No, they travel back to the cities through which they came. Cities where they'd been stoned and dragged out and left for dead, where plots against them and death threats existed, high-risk travel zones, and a long, hard travel going the long way. Look again at verse 22. As they're going back, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Hear me today when I say to them it was not about being praised or persecuted. It was not about being loved or hated, welcomed or chased out. It was their commitment to the call. Remember, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. They fully embraced it. They fully embraced it. This this was their job, and it wasn't wasn't their concern as to whether or not their physical well-being would be threatened or not. It was their job to go forward with the work to which God had called them to do. Isn't that beautiful? Later on, Paul would write to the church in Corinth about all the things in which he had endured for Christ. And the Lystra stoning was on that list, you can be sure. But God delivered him through it all. We could go back to Iconium and say God delivered him by letting them know of the plot against them. God delivered him through it, right? 
But then we go back to, to Lystra and we say, well, wait a minute. He was stoned there. Yet God delivered him through that, didn't he? God delivered him through being stoned. But God even delivered him through the admiration and praise of the idolatrous people of Lystra. Which was likely the most dangerous situation they faced. Understand, people, success can be very dangerous. Pride is always lurking. Allow me to circle back for a minute to that subject of how we react to, to rejection or even admiration. In the pastoral ministry realm, rejection takes its tolls on pastors. 40% of all pastors leave the ministry within five years. These are seminary-trained pastors. 40% leave the ministry for good within five years. 80% within a decade. Seminary trained. Eight of every 10 don't make it past 10 years of pastoral ministry. There are pastoral, pastors' wives support groups on the internet in various places, and they report things like husbands with serious depression issues, overwhelming anxiety, abused by churches or boards. How do they handle it? It's, it's not per persecution quite like what we're reading about here in, in chapter 14, but there's also the other side of it. There's the success or the praise side of it. Can be equally dangerous. Dr. Thomas Constable writes, if Satan cannot derail the Christian witness with persecution, he will try praise. Too much persecution has destroyed many preachers and too much praise has destroyed many others or ruined many others. And we've seen that in our world, haven't we? These famous pastors, these famous leaders who are adored by others, people line up and buy tickets to hear them talk about how ministry should happen. And that's just the pastoral realm, but certainly we must all be on our guard. The praise and worship directed toward Paul and Barnabas was a greater threat to them than flying stones. Think about it. A successful stoning would have placed them into the eternal presence of Jesus. Successful worship of them would have potentially rendered them useless for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, I enjoy traveling. My wife and I, my brother and his wife, were just on a three-day motorcycle ride. We went down to the Ozarks 
It was just fun. Nice to get away. But you know what? I love to get home. I thought about that. I envisioned Paul arriving back where they started in Antioch. And imagine those believers there that were part of that whole commissioning of them, saying, set apart for me uh, Barnabas and, and Paul, right, for the work. And as they see them coming, maybe they see, they see Paul and they, they look at him and they know he's in rough shape. Maybe he's got scars. Maybe those wounds haven't totally healed yet. He's got scabs or, or he's limping as he comes. And Barnabas, Barnabas begins the report. Remember, they're commended for the grace of God to the work which had been fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. And now he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And maybe as Barnabas is telling this in detail, a big smile starts to come across Paul's face. And that that smile maybe reveals a couple of things about Paul. One is that he has fewer teeth than when he left because they were all aiming for his head. But the other is a complete joy about having been used by God. An unmistakable smile that declares the goodness of God. My time is gone. A couple of thoughts to leave with you. Make sure you repent of any idolatry that is present in your life. Be careful. Be careful. Be aware of the dangers presented by both rejection and admiration. Turn all of your worship toward the Lord. And finally, persevere in proclaiming the gospel in all circumstances. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, there is none like you. Lord, we confess that if were we to have written the history of the church, we would have written it differently. Were we in control, we would have protected Paul from any physical harm. We would have made sure those opposing Jews didn't get near the crowds to change their minds or anything like that. But Father, you had a purpose in it. And we know that evil doesn't play nice. And we know that deception is strong. And Father, I would pray that even this morning in this place, that if there's someone here who's just bound in deception and unwilling to see or unable to see Jesus and the gospel, the good news of it. Lord, I pray that your power would just lift that deception even now. They would find themselves running to the feet of Jesus in full acknowledgement of their own sin and their unworthiness to be in your presence, but acknowledging that the finished work of Christ on the cross and leaving that tomb behind and that they would invite Jesus to be their Savior even now. Freed from the deception and from the enemy's ways, but also freed from that condemnation. 
set free as a child of God. Father, we would just praise you in that. Father, for those of us that know you, and because of our faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord, may we be people who are so joyful about it that it radiates from us. And that we look for opportunities all the time to proclaim the goodness of our Savior. That all might know, that all might hear. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, as we lift our voices in song before you, we just recognize that as Christians, we become brothers and sisters with those of faith who have gone before us. And Lord, someday we will join them in singing praises to you, honoring you as Lord of all. Because we know that the praise and the worship doesn't belong with us, it belongs to you. And so, Lord, we give it to you now. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.